You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Hello friends, welcome to the Pod King Podcast again. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm Donnie King, the host of the study. This is Monday, March the 28th, episode number 57, Jonah, part one. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last special edition, we answered a question that has befuddled many people through the years. The question was, is it wrong for people to judge? We took a deep look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and then we brought in many other scriptures and several points concerning our topic. We hope that you were pleasantly surprised by our final answer we gave at the end. In today's episode, we begin our study in the book of Jonah. We look at some background, history, and cultural perceptions of Jonah. We also look at several of the elements that are involved with this powerful book. We tackle some of the tough issues within the first two chapters. We ask the question, do you believe Jonah was a good man or a bad man? By the time we finish this book, we believe your feelings might have been like a roller coaster at times. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of our Pod King podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. I'm glad to be coming to you today, and I'm thrilled that you tuned in to listen. We've got an exciting lineup today of the book of Jonah. We're going to look at chapter one, and we've got a lot of ground to cover in the process. I'm excited about some of the things that we're going to be covering within these next few episodes. How do you view the man that we know named Jonah? Is he a great man? Is he a prophet of God, or is he a rebellious person that God's trying to force to do something? Well, before I get started, I want to talk a little bit about the background information concerning the book, its author, and the storyline. The question's been asked before, who wrote the book of Jonah? Well, most people assume that because it's got Jonah's name on it, it must be about Jonah, so Jonah wrote it. Jonah 1 and 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, And so most people take it from that, that Jonah wrote the book. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jonah wrote this book. If you think about it, if you were a prophet of God who wanted to write a credible and believable story about your life, would you write a book about how you rebelled against the God you claim to serve? (laughs) So most likely this is an account of the life of Jonah written by himself, but it's a possibility that somebody else may have wrote it for him. Several scholars today believe that it was written by a contemporary of the prophet, not by himself. Other people believe it's not even a real story. It's just a total allegory and is made up to prove a few points that the author was wanting to make. The book of Jonah is among the shortest books in the Bible. It contains only 48 verses. It may be short, but it has plenty of information within it. It has several plot twists and a lot of instruction from the Lord that can be found within it. Many people struggle with how to look at or even how to understand the book of Jonah. Some people view it as all the other prophetic books. While there's a few, like I said, that only see it as an allegory because of some of the elements within the story seem imaginary. Some people believe it's only a parable. Others assert it's a historical fact. 
The reason they think it could be made up is people will say there's absolutely no scientific way anybody could live in a fish for three days and three nights. The author of the book of Kings certainly believed that there was a historical figure named Jonah, though, because he wrote of his existence in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. Let me read you that. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. Jonah obviously lived in the time of King Jeroboam around 860 years before the time of Christ. And speaking of Christ, it certainly appears evident that Jesus himself believed Jonah and his story to be historically true. The reason I say this is Jesus spoke of Jonah no less than three times in the Bible. Let me read you each of those accounts before we get started. Matthew twelve thirty nine through 41. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Matthew 16 and 4 says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Luke 11 and 29 through 32. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Interestingly enough, talking about Jesus and Jonah together, Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which is a small town in Galilee. It was very near to Nazareth. This is also why many people believe Jonah to be from the tribe of Zebulun. Many people today view Jonah as a rebellious prophet and an evil man. This is definitely not the way he's perceived by the Jewish community. Messianic Jews who accept Jesus as their Savior, they believe Jonah to be one of the greatest types of Christ found within Scripture. Orthodox Jews who do not even accept Jesus believe Jonah to be one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament era. The book of Jonah is read in the synagogues on Yom Kippur. Now, that's very significant. That's the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. We're talking about the sacred day of atonement. Of all books that they could read in the Bible, why would they read this book on the most holy day? The themes of this book are certainly appropriate to the occasion. You have sin, you have divine judgment, you have rebellion, you have repentance, and divine forgiveness, all right here in these 48 verses of the book of Jonah. What's remarkable is that the book of Jonah is not about the nation of Israel at all. It's about a Jewish prophet, but that's it. The rest of the story is about Gentiles. Sinners and pagans seem to have the favorable parts in this book. 
All of this while the one who is misunderstanding the true nature of God and doesn't like the way God does things is none other than the Hebrew prophet himself. Jonah is the one that God teaches a lesson in compassion. I want to examine this book verse by verse at first, and then we're going to learn many of the themes that run through the book after this. Reading the first three verses, we find a wealth of information. Let me read you those. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We know that the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. The Bible says so. This could mean three totally different things. Number one, it could mean that God spoke to him in an audible voice. Number two, it could mean that God gave the words to him of what to say through the Spirit. Number three, it could even mean that Jesus had a Christophany and the word of God, the literal word of God, physically appeared unto him. Now, any of those would work, but most likely God spoke to him either in an audible voice or through his spirit. However you want to determine what's meant here, we know that this was Jonah's commissioning to become a prophet of the Lord God. Jonah was the son of Amittai. He was a proud Hebrew. That was a lot of his problem, to be honest with you. The word of the Lord told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. God called Nineveh a great city. Nineveh was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in Erech, in Akkad, in Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah and resin between Nineveh and Cala, the same as a great city. God told Jonah to cry against Nineveh because their wickedness had come up before him. Nineveh was one of the cities along with Babylon that Nimrod built. Nineveh was a major city in the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was famous for serving many gods. They served Asher. They served Adad. They served the god named Sin. They served Shamash and Ishtar. Instead of going to Nineveh, though, and preaching to those pagans who served false gods, Nineveh was only 500 miles away, and instead of going there, Jonah decides to sail down to Tarshish, which would be around a 2,000-mile journey. At that time, Tarshish was one of the farthest cities from Israel that was known by the Jews. Tarshish is believed to have been located in southern Spain at that time. Jonah goes to Joppa, the closest seaport to Jerusalem, and he heads out on his journey. One of the key phrases in this whole book is found at the end of verse 3 in chapter 1. We're told that Jonah was going from the presence of the Lord. Do you think that Jonah truly believed he could flee from the presence of the Lord? The word from here literally means away from. He was going away from God. The Jews believed that to leave the borders of Israel was to leave the presence of God. So he left Israel just to get away from God and go to where he felt comfortable. So by this, we know that Jonah tried to go as far away as he knew that he could go. But I want to tell you that Psalms 139 and 7 tells us how that goes. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Jonah was doing what two others had done before him. 
Cain tried this in Genesis 4 and 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelled in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Guess who else did this? Satan did it twice in the book of Job. Job 1 and 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Job 2 and 7, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. We know that the devil is not a good person. We know that Cain was one of the most wicked men of his era. And here's Jonah, a prophet of God, doing the exact same thing the devil and Cain had done before, leaving the presence of the Lord. Because Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. Let's read a few more verses here. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. The sea that's being referenced here would probably be the Mediterranean Sea. When it says the Lord sent out a great wind, that's the same word as cast forth, which is used three other times in this first chapter. It's found in verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 15. Let me show you how they're used. But the Lord sent out a great wind. This is verse 4. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship. Going down to verse 12. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Verse 15, So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. So that's the same word in the Hebrew here. The Lord sent out a great wind could be worded, The Lord cast forth a great wind. This sounds like the storm of a lifetime, really, but it appears that they were fairly common on the way to Tarshish. Let me read you a couple more scriptures, one in 1 Kings 22 and 48, and the other one, Psalm 48 and 7. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they went not, for the ships were broken at Ezion Geber. It sounds like there was some bad storms that could have broken down the ship here. Psalm 48 and 7. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. It sounds like storms were pretty common going down to Tarshish. Well, we know that the mariners feared the ship would be broken in half, and they began to cry out to their own gods. They also began to throw stuff out of the ship at this point. It's at this point the narrative switches over to Jonah, and I don't believe it's by chance because as they were throwing stuff out, when the narrative shifts to Jonah, guess what? Jonah would soon be one of the next items that was thrown overboard. At this point, he's down in the sides of the ship, and he's fast asleep. The shipmaster finds him, he wakes him up, and rebukes him. And then the shipmaster encourages Jonah to call on his God. The shipmaster acted more like a preacher or a prophet than Jonah does. The words of the shipmaster are nearly identical with the king of Nineveh that we read of in Jonah 3 and 9. He says, if so be that the Lord will think upon us. And this is what the king says as well. The king says, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? Let me finish reading to you some of these verses. And they said, everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. 
Then they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. They begin to cast lots through fear, trying to figure out whose fault this is. We read that the lot falls on Jonah. The mariners then begin to grill him with four very specific questions. What is your occupation? Well, I'm a prophet of the Lord. Where are you from? Well, I'm from the land of Israel. What is your country? I'm a Hebrew of the Israelites. What people are you a part of? I'm one of the Jews. So Jonah tells them that he's a Hebrew and that he fears the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, wait just a minute. We were just told in verse 3, he's running away from the God of heaven. But he's telling these people, oh, I'm a servant of the Lord God. I fear him. Well, that's a little interesting. But that statement in itself indicates the sovereignty of God. Let me read you a couple scriptures that correlates with this. Psalm 146 and 6 says, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. The Hebrews love claiming that they serve the God who made the heavens and the earth. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 14 and 15. And saying, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. In other words, using that phrase this way, it indicates the sovereignty of God. We serve the only God who can do all things, the only God who created all things. When Jonah told these men that he feared the Lord his God, that means that he honors him. That means that he reverences him. It literally can mean to fear or be afraid of, but it also means to worship. These men listen to this rebellious prophet just stand there and tell them, I honor my God. One thing for sure, I reverence the Lord. I'm telling you, I fear the Lord and I try my best to live what's right. And then he was telling them, I worship the God of the heavens, the only one true God. Well, that sounds great. That just really sounds interesting. So let's move on just a little bit. And we'll find that this comes back to bite Jonah just a little bit. Jonah is using the Hebrew name for God, and he actually told them he was a servant of Jehovah. This made the mariners even more afraid than they had already been. When Jonah says he's a Hebrew, he's telling these men, I'm a Hebrew above what you are. I'm above you pagan sailors. That's the whole point. He was letting them know, I am superior. I'm better than you. This is the heart of Jonah's biggest problem. His national pride and his feelings of superiority hindered him from doing God's will. The men began to ask Jonah all of these questions, and they began to drill him, wanting to know all of these different things. And Jonah is going back and forth with them, talking the talk, but was he walking the walk? That's something that we must understand and try to decide here. Jonah 1 and 10 says, Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They began to ask him, why are you fleeing from God? Can you imagine what these men were thinking about Jonah right now? He had just told them, I fear the Lord. I honor the Lord. I reverence the Lord. I serve the Lord. I worship the Lord. 
but he had already told him when he got on the boat, I'm running from the Lord. That's pretty convincing. I wonder if they were won't know what church he went to so they could all come next Sunday. They knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and here he is telling them, I, I love him, I serve him, I worship him. This is the danger in talking the talk but not walking the walk. This is the danger of playing the hypocrite because people who see you live the way you live also hear you the way you talk. When you do all manner of evil and then you turn around and claim the Lord's blessings upon you, I want to tell you something. People take notice of that. They may not say a word. It doesn't say that these sailors rebuked Jonah and they said, hold on a minute, you ain't living what you're talking about. They just listened to what he had to say. They asked him a few other questions and they move on. But I want to tell you, we need to live what we say we're living. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't try to impress anyone. Just live your life and let God be God. So the men, they began to try to row their way out of the storm, but the storm actually grew worse. The sea grew more tempestuous. Let me read you this. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. They tried to row, they tried to get a hold of it, but they could not do it. So finally they listened to Jonah, who had told them to cast him overboard, and a great calm would come. Well, you have to give it to these pagan mariners because they truly tried to spare the prophet. They tried to leave him in the boat and get a hold of it and try to get the storm behind them, but they couldn't do it. It got worse the longer he was in the boat. So the mariners finally did as Jonah had said. They threw him overboard. But the Bible says as they did, they pleaded unto God that he would forgive them for doing this. What I find so interesting is that they prayed to Yahweh according to the Hebrew text. I want you to listen to this. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What I find so interesting is that they prayed unto Jonah's God. They truly said a prayer to the God of Jonah. And then they said, Lord, you do as you please. Let me read you Psalm 115 and 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. It almost sounds as if these pagans knew the scriptures. <laughs> in verse 16, if we recognize what is going on, it looks like a revival breaks out. It's not been brought about by Jonah's great obedience, I can tell you that. If any revival came forth, it was by these men seeing the need of their hearts, their lives, and fearing that they're fixing to die and go into eternity. And it could be because they've seen a rebellious prophet who said, I serve the one true God, act out in rebellion against his own God. As they threw him overboard, you know they didn't know that God had a fish prepared for him. They had no idea what would happen to him. In their minds, as soon as they threw him overboard, he was a dead man. 
They threw him overboard and pleaded with God, please don't hold this man's blood against us. In other words, we're not trying to murder him. Have mercy on us. The Bible says that these men, these pagans, they feared the Lord. Isn't that what Jonah just said he did? And here's the rebellious prophet thrown overboard while these pagans get to stay on board and they actually have true fear of God. The Bible goes on and says that they even worshiped him. We read that they offered sacrifices. Now, I want to tell you something. This is pretty astounding. It's amazing that they even thought in this manner, but they began to pray. They feared the Lord. They worshiped him. They offered sacrifice unto him. And then the Bible said they made some vows and promises. There's no telling what took place in these men's heart. The Bible tells us that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Catch that in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That tells us a lot just right here. The Bible tells us things for a purpose and for a reason. Every word that's in the Bible was put here for a purpose. This is a past tense statement. That's a powerful thought in itself because it lets us know that God knew before he ever commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh that Jonah would rebel. God knew what Jonah's response would be, so he already had a great fish prepared for when Jonah rebelled. How long do you reckon it was before God even spoke to Jonah that he allowed the fish to be growing just for this time? God knew Jonah would rebel. He also knew that there would be a storm on the waters. God knew that Jonah would be thrown overboard eventually. He even knew the exact spot that Jonah would be cast out of the ship. He knew the area that the fish needed to be in, even under stormy conditions. Do you ever struggle with believing that God knows where you are? Have you ever felt that he doesn't know what you're going through? Don't you think for a moment that God doesn't know what you're going through? He knows everything that's going on in your life. What a mighty, sovereign God we serve. Pastor, that's great teaching and a great start to the book of Jonah. I think Jonah is showing us and teaching us that it's never wise to try to run from God. That's right. Pastor, we've got a question sent in here today. You ready for it? Yes. The question goes like this. Why did Jesus do what he did in the temple? Did he lose it that day? Okay, it's not a very specific question, but I I think there's enough information here to know what's being talked about. Obviously, it's speaking, the questioner is speaking of what happened in John chapter 2 in the temple. Let me give you a little bit of the setting here. In John chapter 2, around verse 13, Jesus is going up to the Passover to Jerusalem, and he found people in the temple who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money. He goes in and he makes a a scourge of small cords and he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep, the ox, and he poured out the changers' money over through the tables. He told them that had the doves and were selling them, take them out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And it looks like he just totally flipped out this day. It looks like he was so mad, but he wasn't mad. He wasn't just losing it. Our sanctifier didn't become unsanctified. I want to rebuke that spirit of blasphemy that would even say such a thing. That's right. He was actually fulfilling a prophecy when he did this. He was not throwing a temper tantrum. He was fulfilling prophecy. And that prophecy is in Malachi 3. Let me read that to you. 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Malachi says the messenger, when he comes, he'll come suddenly. Jesus appeared out of nowhere. He said, who will abide his coming? They could not stand before him when he arrived. Malachi says when he appears, he's going to be like a refiner's fire. He's going to burn up that which is not needed. He sent out of the temple that which was not needed in the temple. When he appears, he'll be like fuller soap. In other words, he's going to cleanse the temple of which we read that he did do. Malachi says he would purify or purge the sons of Levi. Well, guess what? It's the priest in the temple, the Levites, and he come in and he purified them by getting rid of many things they didn't need in the temple. This would be those running the temple that Jesus rebuked. Wrath is God's reaction in time to the phenomenon that we know as sin. God sends his wrath upon sin. He always does. He always will. He grants us mercy for a while. When that mercy has been pushed aside and rejected, eventually wrath must come. People today have a distorted view of God. They believe it's impossible for God to be seen as a God of love and a God of judgment simultaneously. They believe it's impossible for him to be loving, but yet bring judgment at also. God's wrath should never be seen in opposition to his love. The wrath of God is actually an outworking of his love. Because failure to hate evil implies a deficiency in love. A God who does not detest evil is not worthy of our worship. A God that would not be holy can't be righteous, so why would you worship him? No, Jesus didn't lose it that day. He was simply keeping with the rest of the Godhead as he fulfilled the prophecy from Malachi on that day. He detests evil. He does bring judgment. And we need to live right before him all the days of our life. Amen. Good answer. Friends, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast today. But if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. If you have a comment about this podcast or any of our others, we welcome your input. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's word. But until next time, may God bless you all. We thank you for tuning in today, and we invite you to come back Friday and hear again. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid to go. I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to, he's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home and glory.